welcome to To Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And we are getting close to the end. I hope you all are excited. we got about 10 weeks left, uh, and we are continuing through some of Isaiah and John. Um, and getting into these sections of Isaiah and getting into prophecy, we are so re- re- repetitive that, um, that, that there's almost less to say sometimes about some of the stuff, And um, uh, but as we unpack John, some of the New Testament, even more so when we start getting to something like Revelation, where there's so many things that we have already read for the past two years that get pulled in and strings that get tied in. Uh, we'll spend a little more time there. But um, today with Isaiah, we are dealing with a, a, a kind of a repetitive theme and, and a theme, I, I would argue, a, a little bit of hope for God's people. He's telling them comfort, comfort, uh, but a reminder that he's in charge and he hasn't forgotten them, uh, but he's been working his plan, including raising up this guy like Cyrus and, and the Persians to ultimately deal with the Babylonians. And and this is one of the themes that, that it's for Israel's sake, like Israel, like you struggling with whether or not uh, I'm really more powerful than the gods and whether or not you think I've forgotten you and, I'm, and, and God's reminding them, look, I'm bringing the Persians to wipe out the Babylonians. And it's for your sakes, like the exile is over. Like your timeout is over. You can return to the land. And and I'm doing this for my name and for you. So, so stop questioning my purposes. Mm-hmm. I'm giving you an answer here. I love the questions that God challenges them with. Um, does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. It's a good reminder of us to remember that God is a potter and that we are the clay. He knows what he's making and forming. Even if we expect it to come out a different way or look differently, we've got to be able to trust our creator that he is making good things out of us. Yeah. And, and this victory by by the Persians, it's going to sort of be total. There's going to be a direct victory over the idols of the nations, even through uh, the work of this guy who doesn't even know Yahweh. I mean, it's very clearly in the language, uh, an outsider, a, a Gentile in a way. And, and God reminds his people, look, I, I didn't create the world to be chaos. Like it's to be inhabited, it's to, for Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. And like, if people are wandering in the dark and seeking in chaotic ways, it's not the design. Like you, you're meant to look for me in light and in truth. And if you want chaos, go to the Babylonian gods. They're mm-hmm. chaos. They are um, uh, those sort of things. And he reminds us people, I am the source of righteousness and strength. So God emphasizes here and reminds them that he is the only God. He is the only one who can save. And he reminds us of the truth that he is the creator, that there is no other God beside him and that all will bow to him and every single person will know this one day. So that should cause us to be grateful, but also to live prayerfully and urgently for the loss that we want them to know him. Yeah, and and he keeps trash talking the idols as if they're like these overburdened donkeys that are mm-hmm. that would exhaust people and and solve nothing. They 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 have no purpose and all they do is frustrate. And so uh, he keeps just going with that. Yeah, what a gift that I mean. Others look to these little gods that have been made by mankind, but we get to look at the Creator, the Maker of all creation. What a gift. And then he speaks of the humiliation of Babylon. And once again, if you're in a much more of an honor, sort of shame, cultural world, like the language here is meant to be very, very shocking. That they compares Babylon, that they're going to be like this virgin who grinds up meal, but then goes through the rivers naked and ashamed and, and all these things. It's meant to be this reversal. Israel, you've experienced your shame, but now it's Babylon's turn to be ashamed. And, and they're going to be ashamed. Instead of being this richly rewarded mistress to the nations, they're going to experience this shame like a like a widow who has lost her children. And, and that sort of the experience is meant to be seen in this. 
Yeah, it's the um, this idea of this people or this culture who was entitled and thought they were um, that they wouldn't deal with consequences, but they will experience the harsh realities of God's judgment. And, and God reminds Israel, like, look, like you you are more like your ancestors than you you think, and you are you are still have this stiff neck stubbornness to you. And He reminds them, look, I am going to do a new thing. And I would argue in this chapter. 48 section. Like it, it's a bit of a pivot towards God that, that um, we went from Israel, you are my servant, return to me. And, and I'm going to make you the blessing agent again to the nations and water where it's dry and life to the dead, be a servant. But here it, it gets a little bit of a pivot saying God's coming to them saying, look, I'm, I got, I'm about to do a new thing. Something you haven't even heard about up till now. What I'm going to do next is new to you. And and we'll see in the next section why I think it's a, even more a pivot. I, You know, God points out really, like Chris just mentioned, the stubbornness of Israel and that they are stubborn in their unbelief. And man, that's convicting. Makes me pause and reflect and think, am I being stubborn in my unbelief in any area? But we also see that God refined them in yep. the furnish of affliction and they did it for his sake um, and for their goodness. And so we've got to remember that God will not give his glory to another. And he really shouldn't. Anything less would be insufficient for us. But remember, these different little furnaces of affliction that we go through our God, our opportunities for us to learn something else or something more about God. Yeah, and and, and he has this bit of a lament over Israel, and he he never gives up on them. We don't get the sense that he's he's giving up on them, but the, but he's giving the reasons why he has to do something new. And he says, "Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Like this this could have been yours, Israel, but it's not. And and I'm gonna have to do. I, I I'm gonna have to reveal more of a plan." something different that's going to come one day. Yeah, again, a reiteration that he's not going to abandon them. And don't they need just to hear that over and over and over again, just like we do. Uh, for those of us walking in Christ, sometimes we still forget that God doesn't leave us. We need to be reminded over and over and over again that God will not abandon us. He's not forgotten us. And so here in chapter 49 is where I feel like we have this new identity of a servant because we even get language like, uh, and, and now the Lord says, he who formed me from my womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. So we get a bit of a phrasing where the servant itself is not Israel. The servant will draw Israel back. And, and so there's somewhat of a new servant on the scene. And so um, I think there's a pivot here and this servant will, and we get, a pivot too towards the Gentiles. So uh, there's going to be a light to the nations and even these Gentile pagan Kings will come and bow down to him. Yeah. So God's servant is not only going to just raise up the tribes of Judah, but all the nations. And so we're getting a glimpse into the future of the Gentiles and Jews believing in and following God together. Yeah. And his mission is to bring those out of prison into light and freedom and lead people in the right way of living and level the mountains and create a holy road or or a holy way of living is one way to think about it for people to live on. And so the, the, the instruction here is for rejoicing. Like God is comforting his suffering people. Like this is a good thing. So Israel, God has a forgotten you just like a mother to a newborn baby god god doesn't just forget you like you're still the newborn baby in a way like you're still his you're still his child in some ways but but um he's just saying also there's there's this new thing that's going to happen but god hasn't given up on you and your neighbors your neighbors are even one day going to be like almost family to you so let's wait on that promise that's the sort of the, the instruction there too like let's rejoice and let's wait to see what god's going to do
I love the passage in this section that says, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. God has not forgotten his people, and those who wait for him shall not be put to shame. This passage to really believe that God had not forgotten his people and that he would deliver those who waited on him required a lot of faith, even for those in Israel who remained faithful. And it requires faith for us as we are living in this place, kind of in the already and the not yet, waiting for everything to be made right. And, and if you're reading through this whole section this past week and you're like, who's speaking at this moment? Uh, you are not alone. I mean, even good commentators are like, yeah, we're not totally sure. Is this Isaiah? Is this God himself? Is this some mysterious servant character? That, and, and so uh, sometimes understanding all those break, break points, it's not always simple and that's fine. Um, it, it, it but making sure you understand the overall messaging is really what matters. And you know, even in this section, we there's sort of God being like, "Look, when when did you get a divorce certificate? When did?" And, and He's reminding him once again, like, "We have not separated. Like, you are still mine, and I am yours." But mm-hmm. this time frame was really because of your like sin. This was still your punishment. And He's like, "And and I called for salvation, and and no one repented yet." I still am going to save. And, and, and then we hear that about the servant who, who has his ears open to the Lord and the servant who endures all these sufferings yet trusted God through it. And the enemies at the end of the day will be worn out like clothes eaten by moss. And, and we start really get introduced for the next few chapters to this idea of the servant as, as one who's going to suffer. Um, and yes, Israel will think about themselves in that, that they were also like this bruised reed and, and things like that. But at the same time, as I said, I think there's a pivot here to a personification of the servant, not just um, a personification of Israel as a servant. There's a section or a passage in Isaiah, the beginning of Isaiah 50, that says, I have set my face like a flint, and I know I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. And I think this is a really good passage for us to come back to and how we are to respond when we start to believe lies about our guilt or our shame. We all struggle with shame because of sin, but we can remind that that he who vindicates us is near. And so believe that your guilt and your shame has been cleared on the cross. Yeah, in the last chapter you had to read this week, uh, really has such a tremendous future hope that heavens and earth in some ways will be reunited as one thing and the wilderness will be like Eden again. And so um, the encouragement there for the people is once again, that for the righteous to continue to endure. And, and he's like, remember Israel, like I've done work for you before fast. I defeated this serpent. I helped you across the dry land, see my salvation. Like Babylon's no longer your concern. I'm going to deal with that. And my punishment is done. You've, you've drank from, the cup of wrath to what you've needed to drink. And now I'm, I'm moving on to, to deal with the idolatry of Babylon and other places. There's a lot of incentives for obedience in here and reminders that God reminds them that an ent- a great nation came from a barren couple and Abraham and Sarah, and that God's saving power will outlast the universe and believers will be eternally vindicated. He reminds Israel to lift up their heads, lift up their eyes and trust in God's sovereign and eternal work. Yeah, and we jump uh, back into John, and we are in the midst of uh, a few chapters where Jesus is spending just one on twelve time uh, with his disciples, and um, kind of these intimate last conversations. And um, he re- he reminds them, sort of the 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 uh, speaking of his connection to the Father. He's like, "Look, I I left the Father and arrived here, but now I leave this world and, and go back to the Father." And it's an encouragement. He he kind of uses it as encouragement for the disciples of going like, "And you, you, I'm doing this so that you have access." to the Father. He's like, no more riddles. Like, you want to know what I'm going to do? I'm about to make a way for God to dwell with you and you to dwell with God. 
God and reconcile the rift that exists between these people. And, and he reminds them, look, you guys are going to abandon me. Like when this crucifixion happens, but, but it's all good because I have access to the father. And on the other side of all this, on the other side of the crucifixion, know that I have overcome this world. Like you will have the same access to the, the, the divide that this world brings will no longer be there. Jesus prepares his disciples here for his death and ascension, encourages them to have peace and to take heart. And I think we need these exact same words, to have peace and take heart. We live for another world. We trust that, and we know that the tribulation here is going to make us weary, but it's not the end. We fight from victory, and we know that Christ is overcome, and because of that, we can have peace and take heart. Yeah, and then we see what's uh, called very often the high priestly prayer, and um, it's it's Jesus's longest prayer recorded, and and we see uh, at least a, a bit of a breakdown. Jesus prays about himself and and his father, and then he prays for his disciples, and then he sort of opens it up even more to pray for all believers. And Jesus in this finale marks with in his prayer to the Father, like he has done all that he has been put before him to to accomplish eternal life, like. Other than the cross itself, the last final step, he's like, I've, I've been obedient to everything that's going to bring these people eternal life and, and for all who believe in him. And it's very much a phrasing that John repeats. And, and we see Christ sort of have this beautiful intercession for his disciples. He's like, look, the God, Father, you gave me these disciples and now I'm interceding for them. I pray that you continue to keep them. And as I leave them, that they would be kept and, and protected. And yes, with my words, they're going to be attacked, but, but may you protect them and may you sanctify them. May, may my word to make them more like me or more holy in the process. And and then last, it seems like there's a pivot and not just for these disciples, but really for all who believe in his words. And and so for us, there's a prayer that Jesus prays while on this earth. And I would argue continues to pray for our unity and oneness. And it's a profound statement because he says, I want you to be, I want them to be as unified as, as I am to you, Father. And think about that. Like, Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit are the Trinity that has existed for all time as 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 one thing. Like I mean, it's so essential to our confession that that God is one, and there's a oneness that the Father and the Son have for all of eternity. That Jesus says, "I pray for my people to have that kind of oneness," and and that is a profound statement and a profound weight of of that we have an intercess like someone interceding for us in the heavenlies in Jesus, praying for what is probably the most foundational and essential oneness of all of the world and the universe. And so uh, Jesus does that for us. Yeah. I don't think we can overemphasize enough really that Christ's prayer for us is unity and that that unity would look the same way that the son and the father were united that we read about in John. So prioritize this instead of divisions around secondary issues, focus on being unified with the body. Satan also has read this prayer and is constantly working to divide the church and people within the church. And we have to be aware of this and prepared for his attacks. So as you are attending church or serving in church, volunteering, whatever, as you feel these ideas, these things come into your mind that may make you discontent or may make you want to complain about something, step back and think like, what is this the enemy? Is the Lord revealing something to me or is this the enemy trying to disunify? Be aware of that. And as we are aware of that, we can fight against it. Yeah. And, and we'll start noticing where John is probably like filling in gaps. Uh, he kind of doesn't deal much with communion. He doesn't build much with the Garden of Gethsemane, but he's he's certainly uh, more detailed in other sections. And uh, Judas, once again, is it's very explicitly, at least in John, 
identified as the betrayer. Uh, and Jesus, once again, uh, is, is the, the peaceful, or at least the, the one that feels the most in control of any given situation. He's telling Peter to put down his guard. He's very much answering the question. They're like, are you the Jesus? He's like, yeah, I'm, I'm him. It's, he's not trying to hide. He's not trying to be deceptive. He is simply stating who he is and moving forward with that. So as we read about Jesus being betrayed and arrested, there's a section where he talks about how they went across the brook Kidron. Mm -hmm. And the other time we read about that in scripture, one of the other times is when David crosses the Kidron River when his son Absalom is attempting to kill him. So we're kind of following the story here. David fled from that betrayal, though, and Jesus, on the other hand, walked straight into it, choosing to lay down his life freely for us. So we see Jesus here as the better David. Yeah, we, we know from the other Gospels, Jesus is going in order to go pray, not to go flee. And uh, what a difference that, that certainly is in, in how David acts in that moment, how Jesus does. Uh, and then Jesus faces uh, some of his accusers with some of these high up uh, priests uh, within the, the system. But once again, uh, we've talked about this in other gospels. Um, there, there should be a summer of a shocking feel to it. Like we just saw in the previous section that they came at night with lanterns and torches. And um, it, it, this trial is happening at nighttime. It's not happening in the court of the Sanhedrin, which is where trials should take place in the temple. Um, and, and we'll continue to deal with that as we get through this text, but um, it, it, it's, it's purposefully including details to make us feel like this is an unjust, unshady. Um, there's a certain sort of insider group that is really trying hard to get rid of Jesus. Yeah. And the insider group is like the priestly mafia that we've talked about when yeah. studying other books. Uh, and then uh, we get, we've already heard Jesus say that Peter's going to deny. And we see the, the first of those three denials in this next section uh, with this servant girl, uh, just once again, a narrative that's in line with the other gospel writers. Yeah. And it happens around a charcoal fire. And so just remember this idea, follow this theme of a charcoal fire as we can continue to read Peter's story. Yep. Uh, and then the high priest start questioning Jesus. And, and remember, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He didn't come to come and do all this stuff that was totally new, that no one had seen. He, he came to be obedient to what God had already told his people to do, to showcase what the law was really all about, the, the, the intent behind the law, to follow the law as perfectly as any human ever has. And, and yet these priests come along to like, uh, to, to almost accuse him of not following the law. And Jesus is like, what offense do I have? Like, uh, it's actually the priests who are struggling to follow the law, particularly in this moment. They're, they can't even follow their own oral law of how trials should happen. And they ultimately are just trying to get rid of Jesus. And, and, and Jesus has become so offensive for them because Jesus is holy and obedient, and they are not. And their sin is being exposed by the fact that Jesus is holy and obedient. It's the same thing that we feel around people who are um, like obedient to Christ in certain areas, and you feel discontent. You feel like you need to sort of either tear them down or um, defend your own causes and stuff like that. But Jesus is holy, and they aren't, and, and they so badly want to get rid of him in this process. Yeah, I think there's a power struggle at play here, too, and that they— the more influence Jesus has, the less power and control yeah. they have over the people, and they don't want to lose that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and then we jump back outside to Peter, uh, mm -hmm. and and it's I, I love the storytelling. It's not just the the three denials of Peter all in a row. John goes out of his way to sort of split this up, and while Jesus is facing accusations and and people are coming out and he's saying yes, it's me, or when the the these priests and he's like, look, I haven't done anything wrong. Peter's outside denying and, and, and sort of betraying his own, uh, rabbi. And so, um, it, it's, it's so fascinating and not only that, but in an honor shame world, 
the relationship that a rabbi has to to a child to a disciple is almost one like a father and a son and it's almost as if peter's like denying his own father in some ways and so um it, what he is doing is incredibly shameful for their culture mm, yeah and again it happens around a fire yep uh, and then the leaders take Jesus to the Roman authorities, which would have been Pilate. Uh, and this is probably for two parts. First, uh, as we said, capital punishment. Um, the the trial for capital punishment is meant to be had, at least for the men. The women certainly get treated a little different at the time. Uh, but the, for the men, it was meant to be a, a 23-person trial in the Sanhedrin. It's part of the temple. Um, and the chief priests seem to not be interested in making that happen. And so they bring him uh, to Rome. Uh, and Rome, it's second, secondly, Rome is much more ruthless. And so um, crucifixion alone is one of the, the worst ways to die in all of history. It's probably one of the worst capital punishments that's given in history. And so if they can find a way to pin the insert, like pin some charge of insurrection on Jesus by Rome, then Rome would deal with Jesus. Rome would kill Jesus. And in some ways, them as a chief priest could have that much more ammunition and divide uh, this Jesus who had grown popular. They can be like, ah, see, the Romans ended up killing him. Um, and and they're, they're probably in their minds thinking this is the best case scenario. If Rome could kill them, that then we can wipe our hands clean of this whole Jesus thing. Uh, all these people who hate Rome will just keep hating Rome and it'll work out for us in the end. Yeah. So again, we continue to see the shady work taking place and that Jesus really, there's no, there's no reason for him to die here. So they're, even Pilate is saying like, I don't want to deal with this. He shouldn't be dying. Yeah. And, and then there's a whole conversation about kingship uh, with Pilate, uh, which is a super fascinating back and forth, I would argue. And, and I think we get a little more here in John than we do in other places. But um, Jesus reminds Pilate, like, like he doesn't deny he's king, but he's telling him, look, my, my kingdom's not of this world. Like one of the ways my kingdom's not of this world is I'm not trying to overtake it with war and violence. This isn't an insurrection uprising. And he's kind of pointing out that he's not that kind of king, not the world's version of a king, which is what everybody expects him to be. And Jesus then points out that as a king, he has a mission, he has a cause to bear witness to the truth, this this or unconcealed, to, to reveal things, the unconcealedness, and and to share what is actually true. And once again, as as I kind of said in my my things to look forward to last week like Paul's writing to, or uh, John's writing to a predominantly Greek influenced world of, of Asia Minor and um, they would have had so much conversations in the philosophical world like those were the rock stars in ancient Greece and and the, the the questions of what is truth and what is true in the world how do we know what is true and and all this kind of things were massive debates and and Jesus comes along and it's like I, I am coming. To, to show you and to tell you what is true. And, and Jesus has already answered that question. Not only did he say, I am the way and the truth of life, he's even just said in the previous section, sanctify them in truth. And what is that truth? Well, the word, which is Jesus himself and the spoken word of God as well. And, and then we kind of wrap up with Pilate, whose sole task really is keeping the peace. I and mean, we don't even know if Pilate really even wanted to be here because this little state of Israel was a bit of a thorn in the flesh of, of or thorn in the side of Rome. Um, and, and I think Pilate simply just interested in just placating the people. Whatever's going to keep an insurrection from happening, he's fine doing. And he basically is like, I don't find anything wrong in this guy, but if this will shut you all up, then fine. Uh, I'll kill either Jesus or Barabbas, the insurrectionist, whichever one you want. I think what John is doing here is kind of bringing together this idea of who Jesus is, is Jesus is the son of God. And even just as Chris was talking, I thought of all these other times in John where we read about truth, like what, what Chris referenced, and um, even in John 1 of Jesus being filled with grace and truth. So Jesus is truth, but the truth is what is ultimately going to sit on the throne and rule the kingdom. Uh, that we look forward to and we live to. And so basically when he's talking here, he's 
Pilate's understanding of kingdom is so much smaller. And Jesus says, I'm already, I'm already ruling, you know, there's already a plan. Um, and, and so my, my role is to bear witness to the truth, to the ultimate rule and the ultimate sovereignty and glory of God. Yeah. And then Psalm 85. I think it's a messianic psalm. It's pointing us to righteousness and peace kissing. And for us, it's the kiss of eternal life. And for Jesus, it was really the kiss of death on the cross. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, once again, this, that their time, our time, that that's likely written as psalmists are, they're returning from captivity, they're experiencing new sufferings, and the psalmist is crying out, but but crying out things that do get sort of messianic, that they pray for God's grace to continue and our return from captivity, reflecting on sort of the long period of that suffering, but this sort of confidence in the promises of God's blessing. And, and it's there that it becomes sort of this picture of the future kingdom of Christ, of mm-hmm. what is to come. And Psalm 77, or at least half of it. Yeah. So we see Asaph is upset here, but who does he cry out to? He cries out to God. He seeks the Lord. And so it's, again, the reminder that God is listening to us and ready to listen and hear us when we need to cry out to him. Yeah. It, this was like, to me, one of the most like um, frustrating uh, language uh, of the Psalms, It's which is great. I mean, we have songs in the Bible for people to sing, even corporately, that are like just frustrated at times with God and that there's language that there's permission in some ways to do that. Now that's not the sum total and we will see some resolution, but that there's language given for God's people to be like, I'm frustrated. I don't know where you are, God. uh, And I just want, I want my hope to be restored. Mm. All right. Next week, what should we look for? So in the Old Testament, I'd encourage you to re- refresh yourself with Second Chronicles and Nehemiah. Uh, it's written as a historical narrative, not prophetic literature, which we've been in for a while. So make sure you're familiar with the purpose of the book, even as you start Ezra. Yeah. And then in the New Testament, sorry, uh, it's worth looking up the references that John makes uh, when he references Old Testament passages around the crucifixion. There's a lot of connections there. Uh, and yeah, for me in the Old Testament, although we have heard that Cyrus is going to be the judgment upon the Babylonians. There's actually very little details given in scripture about how the Persians actually overflow Babylon. But we do end up in this period where people are going to be returning to Jerusalem and we're going to read in Ezra the return. And we're going to, we've already read in Isaiah that this return starting to sort of happen. And, but no, this comes in waves and it ends up being kind of difficult as well. And I mean, think about people displaced nowadays. You have whole people groups that are left their country um, that one day will return when things stabilize. And, and it's, bittersweet. It's not like this amazing celebration, but a slow, bittersweet return. And we will see that for Israel. It's not a simple, oh, we're just going to go back home and rebuild everything and everything's going to be smooth. There's definitely a a process to it all. And then New Testament, um, sometimes reading through these crucifixion scenes, especially in the ways that, uh, like sometimes how I talk about parsing out the text, what do you notice, what stands out to you, things like that. That's great. But this week is, this is sort of the final time we're going to read through the crucifixion. Like, let it be devotional in some ways, like soak it. Like there's a somberness to this moment. There's sometimes words fail to, to even parse out, but just absorb and maybe sit in silence as you read through the crucifixion and reflect on what it really means. That's it for this week. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Thank you.